Hey everyone, this is Brandy and you're listening to the Faith 901 podcast and this is the first episode of the second season. And now with the first time around, all the podcasts were available all at once. It was a Netflix style type of situation, but this time I'm going to try it a little bit differently just to see how I like it. And so you're not going to get all the shows at one time. But of course, if you follow on social media or subscribe to the newsletter on faith901.com, or if you subscribe directly to the podcast, you'll know when the new episodes come out. It's available on the different players, uh, of course, iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn, Google Play, and also now on iHeartRadio app, on that app. And so you have all those listening options. So with this episode, I am talking to Kenny Stubblefield. And if you're not familiar with him, he uh, he's a lot of things. He's a husband and a father. He's been a pastor. He is also a manager for recording artists. And he's also an advocate for people who have been sexually abused, specifically people who have been abused by ministry leaders. He himself was abused by a youth pastor when he was a teenager. And I talked to him about his experience and the work that he does to help people And also in this episode, he does describe his experience and go into detail. So just know that, you know, when you are listening and a lot of the things he said, I found to be really useful. You know, he talked about telling his family and how they responded and even his dad's, you know, initial reluctance to even letting him be around the person who abused him, you know, just having this feeling of not trusting him and He also talked about the lifelong impact of his abuse and everything that comes with experiencing something like that. And in his words, the the good that has come out of it. And so my hope is that this is helpful to anybody, to everybody who listens. So here we go. Okay. So first thing you know, that when I talked to you on the phone, that I wanted to talk to you about a lot of things, but I wanted to start with your personal experience. And so you said that you were sexually abused when you were a teenager by a pastor. Yes. And so just tell me about that situation. So I am originally born in Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, My whole family is from Memphis. So when I was two, we moved back to Memphis and have Mm -hmm. basically lived here my entire life. Um, In 1995, we joined, my family and I joined a church called Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, It was a a offshoot of Ridgeway Baptist Church. Um, The pastor was, the founding pastor was a guy named Scott Payne. Um, And, you know, in 95, I was a freshman in high school and uh, we had just moved back. We were living in Memphis Mm-hmm. Moved in 1992 down to South Texas for my dad's job. Mm-hmm. Lived there for two and a half years, and then moved back to Memphis. And uh, came came to Memphis um, a pretty broken individual. Um, you know, middle school for everybody is pretty. I lived in a um, city where I was um, a minority, and um, and having a Tennessee country accent made me slightly a target, um, for, for bullying. And, um, I didn't have a whole lot of, of, of friends, didn't really connect well with anybody there. Mm. And so when I moved back to Memphis was, was in a very weird place. Didn't know really who I was, what I, what, you know, really was lacked confidence and lacked, um, just the ability to assimilate into a, a culture that, um, like a youth group culture that I was a part of at that point, and really more than anything, wanted to be liked 
like just like everybody else right. wanted to be right. a part of the popular crowd wanted mm-hmm. to be liked and and um so the youth pastor at my church was a guy named nolan bobbitt mm-hmm. and nolan had created an atmosphere um during that time of of if you're very committed to the youth group, then you're one of the people that are in the in crowd. And so I fought with everything in me to be considered mm-hmm. committed in the in crowd. Would you, um, looking back, would you would you say that that was an unhealthy? Um, personally, the, the dynamic was unhealthy. Mm-hmm. the the good The good part of my life is that I had a great family. Mm-hmm. Um, I had parents that loved me very well, and. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've said in my story, they not only just loved me because I was their son, but they were very active in expressing their love. And so, mm-hmm. so they were, they were very good at, at making sure that I was, I was in a, um, that, that they knew that, that I knew that they loved me. And, um, and so that part of my life was healthy, mm-hmm. um, individually as a person, you know, and, and trying to gain friends and trying to be a part of the in crowd, it took on a very unhealthy role for me, mm-hmm. uh, unhealthy path for me. Um, I did things that, that <laughs> colored my hair in different ways because mm-hmm. certain people in our youth group would do it. Um, you know, I could change and, 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 and go from circle to circle and be a different person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it definitely did create a a dynamic in me that was not that was not healthy um so in in i think it was in 1996 um our church um took another church a local church in the city had a had a a falling out with a group of people and they all came over to emmanuel baptist and one of the guys that came was a, a gentleman by the name of chris carwile and within about six months, he was hired on as a youth intern. And then later on, about six months later, he was hired on as an actual paid staff member of the youth group. Mm-hmm. Chris's role in the youth group was to kind of enhance and, and uh, prop up, you know, different dramatic things in the youth group experience. Like so on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights when we would have our youth group meetings, he was in charge of drama. He mm-hmm. was in charge of, of, of um, beefing up what our programming look like, you know, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But Chris was a, uh, was instantly a pariah, not a pariah, but he created a weird dynamic in our youth group that he instantly created divisions. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, he mm-hmm. would, he would, it became very clear, very quickly. If you were on Chris's side, you were a part of that in crowd. And I was never a part of that. And it drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, it would, it would literally, uh, I, I couldn't sleep sometimes because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Acceptance, especially when you're a teenager, can just trump everything. Absolutely, so. mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, one of the ways that he always showed uh, uh, a desire to, or, or who was on his side or who was a part of that in crowd was that he had sleepovers at his house. And I was never invited to those sleepovers. And it really impacted me. I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one night, I think it was in 2000, I mean, I'm sorry, 1997, um, right before Thanksgiving. It was a Friday night. We had a big youth group function the next morning at our church on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And we were at the church 
doing something, getting ready for that youth group function on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And Chris came to me and said, why don't you spend the night at my house? And it was like instant lights, like, oh, my gosh, I'm in. Mm -hmm. I made it. (laughs) I made it. Yeah, You know, Mama, we made it, you know. And so um, I remember calling my dad and saying, hey, I'm going to go spend the night at Chris's house. And his initial response was, no, you're not. No, you're not. And I said, you've got to let me, you you know, you've got to let me. And he said, no, you're not. I don't want you to go. And I begged him and begged him and begged him. And finally he relented. And and, and he told me, you know, I I don't like him. I don't, I don't trust him. Hmm. Um, I don't think you should go, but I begged him enough to, to, to allow him for him to finally relent and say, okay, you can go. Hmm. Um, and that's where my abuse happened with Chris that night. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, my memory is not great on a lot of things, but I remember that night specifically, every detail. Mm -hmm. Um, We were in Chris's parents' house. Um, He lived with his parents at the time. Mm -hmm. And he... Do you know how old he was? In his mid-20s. Okay. In his mid-20s. He had a kind of a downstairs den that I guess was a a former basement, but it was transitioned into a den. Mm -hmm. Um, He had... uh, one of those big screen TVs before they were flat screens. So mm-hmm. they're sitting on the floor, massive, you know, yeah, really heavy, huge, things, huge yeah. <laughs> monstrosities. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember he had, uh, he had connected, he had used some kind of black box to hijack other people's satellite mm-hmm. channels. Uh-huh. So he had access <laughs> to, cable. he was stealing cable. Uh-huh. He had access to every channel imaginable. And I remember us sitting in his den, it was kind of a shag carpet in his den and um he part of his grooming technique that he used on me was he would flip through the channels and he flipped and stopped on a pornographic channel you know and i'm 16 years old and this is prior to um the accessibility of the internet right and i remember thinking oh you know Mm -hmm. 16 hormones going crazy and 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 being like, wow, this is, I've never seen this before and, and being intrigued by it. And he acted embarrassed, um, but kept it on that channel for a while. And, um, so that was watched for a while and then it was time to go to bed. And I remember saying, okay, well, I'll just sleep on the couch here out in the den. Mm-hmm. It was a leather couch that I was laying down on. And he said, no, 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 no. If you, if you, if you sleep on a couch, you sweat at night and you'll stain the couch because it's a leather couch. And I said, oh, okay, well, then I'll just sleep on the floor then. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. If you sweat and skin particles and all this, you'll mm-hmm. mess the carpet up. And my mom actually likes to vacuum in the morning, so you'll be in the way. So, um, you know, really he made it a, a point to where the only place that I could sleep was in his bed with him. Mm-hmm. And I remember he had a um, either a full size or queen size waterbed. And, um, I had t-shirt and basketball shorts on and we went to bed and I remember waking up and feeling his hand on top of, on top, on the outside of my shorts, mm-hmm. um, on my private area and thinking this must be a mistake and moving his hand and, and going back to sleep. Mm-hmm. I remember waking up again and his hand was inside of my pants and he mm-hmm. was, um, stroking my penis and um I just froze you know I froze I didn't know what to do Uh, you know a lot of folks 
since I've told my story, I would have, I'd have hurt him. I would have right. It's beat easy to say up. what you would have done. I'd have beat him up. I would have done this. I would have done that. Right. Um, but I froze. I didn't know what to do. Um, I removed his hand, um, and just kind of rolled over and it was like all of a sudden my mind just started racing and I didn't know what to do. And, and, you know, in my story, I wrote that I didn't sleep the rest of the night and I woke up or I, I went, didn't sleep the rest of the night. And I, by the time the sun came up the next morning, I had convinced myself that, um, what had happened was wrong, but nobody would believe me if I told them mm-hmm. and that somehow it was my fault. And that this is Chris, he's, he's on staff, he's on, he's at a church, like, mm-hmm. who's going to believe me, you know? And, and by the time that I woke up or by the time that I got up out of bed, I just decided I'm going to be quiet. I'm just going to stay quiet about it mm-hmm. and proceeded on to, um, to the youth group function that morning. Um, and really where the, that abuse was that abuse was, was hard and difficult and, and hard to deal with. Um, and I kept it to myself, um, really where the coercion and the manipulation started where really I found myself really hurt and really psychologically damaged by it was two weeks later. Um, I was called into my youth pastor's office, um, Nolan and Chris was sitting in the office with him. I remember walking in there, and I hadn't spoken to Chris since. I hadn't interacted with him. I walked into that office, and, and you said that you you told no nobody one at that point. Nobody, nobody knew. Nobody knew. Okay. And I walked into the office, and and Chris is sitting on the side, and Nolan is sitting at his at his desk, mm-hmm. and Nolan has just this look of disappointment and anger on his face, and and I remember thinking to myself, Chris told him, mm-hmm. and. Did you feel like the anger and disappointment was directed towards you? I didn't know at that point. Okay. I didn't know at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking, I remember feeling hope, honestly, that, oh, maybe, maybe my story, maybe this is, mm-hmm. maybe this is what's going to happen. Maybe Chris told him, maybe Chris apologized to Nolan and wants to apologize to me. And I remember Nolan sitting me down saying, uh, you know, Kenny, Chris told me something about you spend the night at his house the other night. I didn't say a word, but he kept going and he said, um, he told me that he caught you looking at pornography at his house on the TV. And he said, and I'm, he goes, he, he said he woke up and walked into the den and saw you watching porn on his TV. And he said, Kenny, I'm extremely disappointed in you. Um, and proceeded to, as I said earlier, he had kind of created a dynamic of the committed kids who were part of the in group and those who weren't, mm-hmm. um, proceeded to strip away every part of the committed things that I was doing, whether it's part of a prayer group on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. part of a discipleship group, part of a Bible study, part of the drama team, part of all those different things that I was a part of, um, took those opportunities away from me and basically said, you need to go away for a little bit you know not leave the youth group but just not and it was very clear I was on the outs Mm. and I remember just being sitting there in shock and just oh my god I can't believe this just happened and then what was the worst part about it was then Chris went and told all the youth about 
that I was looking at porn at his house. And so at that point in my mind, the, the physical abuse haven't happened. And then the, the, the psychological and mental side of it is what I'm telling myself is that now nobody will believe me. Right. Now nobody will trust what I'm saying because who am I? I'm this guy who now looked at porn at Chris Carwell's house who has been reprimanded by the youth minister, taken away all of his committed opportunities. Now what do I look like if I'm come out and say, well, no, this is what happened. This right. is what really happened. I'm just a disgruntled kid that now is throwing stones at Chris. And did you also feel that way about telling your parents? Because you said you had that strong family mm. foundation. Did Never that told them. to them as well? Never. Until a year later. Mm. And what was their... I guess what was their reaction? We can get back to the timeline events, but mm-hmm. what um, what was their reaction when you told? So this is a this is a hard question for my family, mm-hmm. but I'll speak bluntly about it. Um, they, I, I would if they were in this room right now talking to you, they would say they didn't handle it the right way. Mm-hmm. The reason they didn't handle it the right way is because remember these things don't happen in a vacuum. Um, so over that, the, the following year where nobody knew about my story, nobody knew I had created this wall of mm. this shield of protection of, I will not be hurt. I mm. will not be allow anybody close to me. I will not. And, and, and so, um, during that year, what people don't understand about sexual abuse is that the physical abuse is damaging, but it's the psychological, mental, emotional damage that is mm. lifelong. Mm-hmm. And what people don't understand about it is that over that year, I had convinced myself even more, had gone deeper into this darkness of nobody will believe me. Mm-hmm. Nobody will believe me. And so when I told my parents, um, I gave them 20% mm. of the story because I wanted to know if they would believe me mm. before I opened myself up to the 100%. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would say to anybody that has anybody to anybody that is being that is someone feels safe enough to come and tell you sexual abuse stories. The first time they tell you trust, they're only giving you 20 percent. Mm. They're only giving you 30 percent because they want to know if they're going to be believed or not. Mm. And, and so my parents, I think, would tell you that, yes, they um, regret the way that they handle. But in their defense. I only gave them 20% of what happened mm. um, because I didn't know if they would believe me. But, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess rewind a year. So right after, or after he told the pastor and then isolated you, mm-hmm. what, what happened at that point or during that time? I don't remember. Mm. I don't remember. It was a blur. Um, you know, I do, I do know that, you know, I've asked my mom mm-hmm. about it. What was I like then? It's so funny how I remember everything about that night, but then the year later, I, I don't remember mm-hmm. what I was like. And she's told me something in you changed. You changed. Mm-hmm. And you weren't the same happy-go-lucky kid that you were before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just even in, in terms of how... So would you say that you were just kind of going through the motions of life? Just kind yeah, of yeah. going to school, still going to church, still... Still going to church, still mm-hmm. going to school. Um, very much was a different kid. Didn't, didn't smile, didn't mm-hmm. laugh, didn't make jokes the way that I did. Um, very much had a defensive wall up 
a shield, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that that that's I don't I don't remember a whole lot about that year, but I know according to people that were close to me, that's that's mm-hmm. what I was like. Okay, and so in 2016, you decided to go public with it and file a police report. Mm-hmm. And so why why did you decide to do that? Because at this point, how how old are you? Right. In 2016, I was 35. Okay. So, it's a it's it, it's a it's a very long story, not a very long story, but a, a very involved story. Um, I I had been public about my abuse. I had told people about my abuse before, mm-hmm. but it was always from a position of strength. I'd always, this is what happened to me. But mm-hmm. I was a I became a youth pastor after that. I was in the ministry. I had, mm-hmm. I was a I was a youth pastor at a church in in the suburbs of Memphis. Um, then I went over to China for four, for three years and was a youth minister, expat mm-hmm. um, group of kids from all over the world. We had a large group of kids and and from sixteen seventeen countries represented there. And so I was mm-hmm. a youth pastor there. Um, I spent and then I, when I came back to Memphis, I worked for a nonprofit ministry here in town, working with at risk at risk urban kids in the city of Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had been my whole entire career was 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 working with students, mm-hmm. um, and, and so, still within the faith community, right? Still within the faith community. I had I had really um, I had told my story of abuse numerous times, but but it was always from a position of strength, never really fully understanding the damage that had been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is what this is what a lot of times church folk do when abuse like this happens is we think that Bible study, prayer, you know, things like that is going to impact or going to change. Mm-hmm. When, when really, what I needed, I had a gunshot wound that was being covered up by, you know, a band aid. Right, right. Instead of going in with legit surgeons and digging out the dead tissue and digging mm-hmm. out the the bullet and the dead tissue and the things that, mm-hmm. that just the damage that was done. I never did that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it was in 2016 that I had a conversation for the first time ever in that 20 years since it had 18 years since it happened. Um, there were three of us that were abused by, um, Chris Carwile at the same time. Um, we had, a year after our abuse happened, three of us came forward to tell our story to our pastors, and that's when the cover-up from our church happened. Mm-hmm. Um, our church um, was willing; they didn't they didn't do anything for us. They one of the words, one of the phrases that the pastor used on me was, "If you're faithful, you'll be quiet," and and that that damaged me drastically mm-hmm. um, moving forward in my walk with the Lord and in my, in my, the way that I interacted with others. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the first time ever in 2016, I'm sitting um, at a restaurant with two other victims, two other victims, Michael Hansen and Brooks Hansen, who just so happened to be my two best friends. Mm-hmm. I've known Michael and Brooks since we were three years old. We've mm-hmm. grown up together, stayed in contact. Brooks was the best man in my wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just really good friends. And, and, mm-hmm. and, but for the first time ever, it just felt like the right time to talk about our abuse. Mm-hmm. And all three of us are at the point where we are all relatively successful. Um, you know, we, feel like there's been some, some healing there that, that maybe, um, other folks have not experienced. Mm -hmm. And we decided, um, that we wanted to, um, ask questions of the pastor that, that covered up our abuse because we felt like that what he did was wrong. And, 
And honestly, what, what really kind of caused that to move forward with us was I kept imagining a 16-year-old right now um, who is being abused, mm-hmm. going through what I went through, and, and, and desperately not wanting them to spend the next 18 years dealing with it the way that I did. Mm. Um, I decided that I didn't want to just be a victim anymore. I wanted to be a survivor and also an advocate mm-hmm. for sexual abuse victims. Mm-hmm. And so that caused us to say, let's go, for, let's go public, let's go forward with our story. How you said that you got to, you guys, you felt like you had gotten to a place of healing. And how, how did you do that? For people who are listening, I just, how, how were you able to get to that place? Two years ago, I would have told you that I was in a good place. Mm-hmm. Two years later, now in 2018, I would have told, I'll tell you, I just survived Mm. the last two years. I've experienced real healing. Okay. Um, 2016, I was a survivor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. We hadn't done anything in particular, anything specific. I just Mm. lived. Okay. I I was alive. Mm. I hadn't taken my own life. I hadn't. Was that something that you thought about? No, Okay. never. Um, but there are a lot that do mm-hmm. that is there are a lot of victims of sexual abuse that do take their lives and mm-hmm. and I think that while I would say healing happened for us to a degree because we were just there, you mm-hmm. know we were there, and we were at that point brave enough to 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 confront it and mm-hmm. not just stay silent about it anymore. How did the three of you you said it was three of you right mm-hmm. how did the three of you? know that your the other had been abused how did you get mm. to that point because you said that you got to the point to where you wanted to talk about it so a year late a year after our abuse mm. um i was sitting outside of brooks hansen's house um we there were some things that were happening in our youth group i remember there were rumors about brooks that chris had started about brooks stealing some stuff from him things like that. And I remember we were sitting outside of his house and I was dealing with some major anger towards our youth pastor, Nolan, for some of the things that he had said to me a year before about our abuse. I was dealing with some major anger. Brooks was dealing with some major anger towards Chris about some of the, according to my thought process, the the lies that he was telling about Brooks, um, stealing stuff from him. And I remember Brooks telling me, I'm just angry. And I said, I, I know why you're angry. And he said, no, you don't. And I said, I, I know why you're angry. You're angry because Chris has told Chris is telling everybody that you stole a T-shirt. And he goes, is that what he's telling everybody? Let me tell you what's going on. Mm. And he proceeded to tell me about his abuse. And I remember just <clears throat> falling to my back. And just this, like, white, hot rush of just, like, oh, my gosh, that happened to me, too. Mm. And I remember just sitting up and going, Brooks, it happened to me too. It happened. Wow. I got to go tell somebody. So I went and told my parents. Mm. And then it was during that time that Brooks reached out to me and told me it happened to my brother and it happened to this person and this person and this person. So. So why do you think, or what was, it seems very methodical, but why would he, what was his reasoning for spreading these lies and, and, you know, I guess getting to the pastor before you. 
abusers, I, I think the perception that needs to be changed in our culture and our society about abuse and abusers is that they are that creepy guy in the bushes trying to grab kids by the ankles. Mm-hmm. Abusers know that for them to gain access to their victims, they have to be in positions of trust, which is why you see pastors, teachers, police officers, things like that, where there's automatic trust based on society's view of their job. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so I think that these guys are intelligent. They know what they're doing and they know that in order to protect themselves, they have to alienate their victims. They have to isolate their victims. Sexual abuse, uh, sexual abusers live in the shadows. They want their victims to remain in the shadows. And the way that you do that is to discredit them, to de- to dehumanize them, to to abuse them physically, but then also on a mental, psychological level as well. Mm-hmm. This is what they do. It's a as as horrible as this word sounds. It's an art form to them. Mm-hmm. They know what they have to do to, in order to be able to um, go unchecked. So, how have um, your experience? How has it changed, or how has it impacted other areas of your life? Because I know you said you're married, mm-hmm. and then I saw your cute kids on social media. Mm-hmm. And so, how has that impacted you know relationships like friendships and being intimate with someone Mm -hmm. and how you raise your children. How has it touched all of those things? Well, I'll say this. I have an amazing wife who is long. Mm -hmm. Some, I was a pretty miserable person to be married to for the first five years of our marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, I would, this desire in me, this God given desire to love my wife and bring her close to me would then be counteracted by this shield that I had put up and, push her away and bring her back and push her away and bring her back. And, and it really did. It impacted the way that I would speak to her impacted the way that I would interact with her. Um, in terms of friendships, um, I don't have a lot of really close friends. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't trust very well, even to this day. Um, I am, I am a, the, the great, some of the greatest friends that I do have are abuse victims. Um, cause there's this bond, even if we don't know each other, I had a coffee with a guy from Ireland that yesterday who lives in Memphis, who is mm-hmm. an abuse victim. And we, we have nothing in common, mm-hmm. but we're brothers mm-hmm. because we have this, um, unfortunate bond with each other that, that, that draws us that yes, even though we culturally have not grown up the same way, mm-hmm. um, we share an experience that will keep us together for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in terms of friendships, yeah, it, it's, 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 you can look back at my life from my, and just to speak bluntly, that was my introduction to sex, mm-hmm. my abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so the toxicity that was imprinted upon my life at that point throughout my early twenties was it really informed a lot of my relationships. Mm-hmm. It informed a lot of my, um, the way that I interacted with people. Um, and you can look back in my twenties and, and see a lot of toxicity and a lot of damage mm-hmm. to relationships because of, of my abuse. Okay. And what about, um, with your, with your children? Um, my kids are, I have a almost six year old daughter mm-hmm. and almost four year old son. And I would, 
I wouldn't go to jail for many people, <laughs> but I would for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want my kids to know that they are safe, that they have, um, while my parents are amazing people and I love them dearly, that I would never allow my kids to walk through what I walk through without asking questions, mm-hmm. without wondering why is Kenny changed without wondering, you know, I, I want my kids to know that, that they, while we live in a dangerous world, that their dad is going to go to hell and back for them. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, it's impacted who I let my kids spend time with. Mm-hmm. It's impacted who I, who I allow into my house. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't just let anybody there. Mm-hmm. And what about your faith, your personal faith, and and also the fact that you still decided to work in ministry? Mm-hmm. Was that something that you wanted to do before, and you continued with it, or did it change your mind about what you wanted to do? In terms of, so in terms of faith and in terms of ministry, I want to t- kind of take those at two mm-hmm. separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the Lord. Um, I love His church. I love His bride. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. My faith has been, I mean, it has been an up and down roller coaster. I mean, it has not been easy. Mm-hmm. It is, there are times where I think, I think that my faith has been, my trust in the Lord and my faith in the Lord has, 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 is as strong as ever. Um, my trust and my faith in people of the Lord is not mm-hmm. the greatest. Mm-hmm. I don't just necessarily trust people mm-hmm. just because somebody claims to be a, a follower of Jesus. Um, now, in terms of the ministry side of things, and I don't think my my youth pastor Nolan and I have reconciled. We mm-hmm. are um, amicable mm-hmm. at this point and um, communicate regularly with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I've ever told him this, um, so he'll probably hear this on this interview. Um, my first couple of years of doing ministry in the youth group, I would my thought process was, how would Nolan do things? Mm-hmm. I'm do the exact opposite. Really. Um, and so, um, I, I think in a lot of ways, um, just culturally, the way that I grew up, it was on kind of an automatic assumption that this is what Kenny was going to do, mm. that I was going to be in the ministry, mm-hmm. but I love, I love working with students. I love doing what I do now as a, um, manager for hip hop recording artists. Like mm-hmm. I love what I do and I do it for the glory of God. Um, yeah, I really, I'm sorry. That's a very involved answer for, I don't really know. (laughs) I just, I mean, because it's easy to, or it's, I, it's understandable for a person to say, I'm done. I'm done with church. I'm done with, you know, any, any aspirations I had or any aspirations or goals or dreams or anything that, I mean, it it could just completely Mm. get wiped out because of something like this. But not only are you continuing just with life in general, you're also working mm. in ministry and you are taking on the role of, you know, a person who did this to you. And, and if I can be honest with you, I think that I probably shouldn't have been in ministry in the 20, in my twenties mm. because I wasn't healthy enough. Mm. Um, I needed to, did you know that you weren't healthy? No. Enough? Okay. thought I was the man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but as I look back at it now, as a 37 year old, I say, mm. Yeah, I shouldn't have been in there. 
um, did a lot of damage to people. Um, not illegal damage, but mm-hmm. um, I was immature and and hurting and probably shouldn't have been in the ministry life that I was in. Mm. Um, so that I think that's a, I think I, I probably, I think probably being in ministry anyway in, in the twenties is a rough place to be, mm-hmm. but being somebody who, who is had at this giant gunshot wound in his gut at the same time, mm-hmm. definitely didn't need to, to be there. Is counseling have, are you in counseling or have you gone through counseling? I, I, I have done counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not currently in counseling. Um, I am looking for a therapist that I can trust. Okay. If that can, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I had a pretty awful counseling situation a couple of years back that um, has caused me to, I don't want to be careful what I say, right. but um, caused me to, to, to not trust some mm-hmm. certain people in the city. Okay. So was, were you, was it Christian counseling? Mm-hmm. There's a Christian counselor here. Okay. So I want to shift to the way you help others. Yes. You've decided to, you were, you are an app. Why did you decide to do that? Why did you not just stop at I'm sharing my story and going public with it? Why did you want to continue? Part of sharing my story was advocacy because it was for others. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest, most freeing things that I've ever experienced in my life was the day that I pressed send with telling my story because mm-hmm. for years my story had been out there 50% truth 40% truth mm-hmm. people putting their spin on it this is what really happened I was told by um, pastors of my church that my abuse never happened um, that I was making it all up so um, one of the most single one of the single greatest healing moments in my life was when I told my story for the first time ever 100% truth, um, unadulterated with this, with, with all the names, every detail, everything out there. That was so healing for me mm-hmm. because one of the things about, one of the things that sexual abusers want to do is take the voice away from their victims. It's a power thing, right? Like it's a power. Mm-hmm. Sex abuse is not about, mm-hmm. it's about power. It's about me exerting power over you. Mm-hmm. And when I press send on that story, it was me taking the power back mm-hmm. and re- regaining my voice. And that is in terms of advocacy. That was what I want for 16 year old right now mm-hmm. is for them to get their voice back for mm-hmm. them to know that while I didn't have anybody 18 years ago that was in my corner to help me mm-hmm. at 16 years old, walk through what I was about to walk through mm-hmm. that 16 year old now You've got me, mm-hmm. and I will walk with you through this, um, and and kind of putting a foundation in place of this is what it could, this is how I can help you, mm-hmm. this is what it can do. Like, mm-hmm. I don't just tell my story publicly to hurt people, to hurt churches, to out pastors. I do it, and that's a comment that I've seen a lot. Absolutely, that that I'm that I'm there to hurt people. Mm-hmm. What, what, that is coming from people that don't understand the power of telling your story. And I'm sorry if it hurts you, then you probably shouldn't have done it in the first place. Mm-hmm. But 
my only goal in all of my advocacy, my goal in my advocacy is not to hurt churches. My goal in my advocacy is not to cause people to lose their job, to lose their families. It is not that. It is to give voices back to victims. It is to give them a a start to heal. Or uh, financial gain. I've seen that as well. That financial gain is part of it. That my that I want financial gain. Yes, I've seen that as well. Um, so if I could speak to that for a second, mm-hmm. specifically, um, if we're going to mention the financial gain side of it, we're specifically talking about High Point Memphis. I have been dealing with High Point Memphis for two years now. Um, when I first initially reached out to Chris Conley to speak to him about um, my sexual abuse story, it was it was to it was a, in a position of trust of I, I don't know much about you. I have family that goes to my goes to your church. Mm-hmm. I have cousins that are pastors at your church. I have friends that go to your church. People that I love dearly that go to your church, and I want to protect your church from this guy that you're about to bring on your staff. They were about to bring on Scott Payne onto their staff, who was the pastor who covered up my sexual abuse. And when I reached out to Chris, spoke to him privately at a restaurant, and he already knew about our stories. And claimed that he wanted healing for us. Healing. I want healing. 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 And um, then proceeded to lie, manipulate, and cover up um, the truth of our stories in order to protect a land deal that they had with the church that they were trying to merge with, which Scott Payne was the pastor. Mm -hmm. So... Throughout that two-year process, it was just this frustrating experience of why are you responding this way? Why are you lying? Why are you doing this? After a year of kind of behind the scenes with them, we decided to go public with it. And then High Point went public with their statements about mm-hmm. started to lie about their, about their interactions with us. It was during that time in our, when we went public where kind of a social media firestorm hit right. that we received communication from their representatives that they wanted to speak to us about pro- about financial restitution in order to shut up. Mm-hmm. They were concerned about our social media engagement and they wanted to pay us to get it to to shut up. Mm-hmm. We turned them down flat. This has never been about money for us. This has never been about I have never once filed a lawsuit against high point. I have never once asked for money from them. I've never once asked anything other than be a voice for victims. Help us out here. Help us mediate. Help us have a conversation. Help us make a change in churches in the city of Memphis. Because I want people to know that this is not isolated. Mm-hmm. Sexual abuse within churches is not isolated. It is everywhere. It is an epidemic. I was told of a story last night of a church in Mississippi right down the street mm-hmm. that is devastating. Small church. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm telling you, it is not an isolated event. And so what we wanted from High Point was for them to help us become advocates, help us to have a voice, lend their support, and they did not at all. I've never once asked for money from anybody. Okay. And so is this is this a, an independent passion project for you? Are you with an organization, or mm-hmm. how does that work? Um, right now it's independent. There's, there's a group of us that mm-hmm. have – that are like-minded, that have a lot of different skills in terms of IT, in terms of videography, film, mm-hmm. you know, films and things like that, mm-hmm. um, that our goal 
is is to just help victims tell their stories mm-hmm. and we want to do that in any way that we can possibly do it there's a lot of social media mediums to do that and mm-hmm. and you know we're in the process of putting something together okay um to to because we don't because we do want to be a a leading voice in this in that we want to give victims their voice back and so how has you deciding to be an advocate affected your life? I saw the post. I mean, it, the situation is not funny, but just the way you, the guy decided to pull up at the Starbucks. How has your life been affected because you want to be an It's been affected in a lot of really good ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that, that people view me as a safe person to talk to about their stories. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that no matter like i said earlier when you share a common bond mm-hmm. with somebody who's been a, an abuse victim no matter how you've grown up or, or how different you are um there's a bond there and mm-hmm. i and i love i want to be a safe place for people to, to share their stories mm-hmm. um i want to be able to lead and guide in that direction uh, to be able to share their stories but in in terms of the negative um i am i don't scare easily um, I get that impression. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I worked at Hamilton high school for five years, uh, running the community center behind that school. And I love that area. I love South Memphis. That is my, that is my spot. Bunker Hill, Alcee ball. That's my, that's, those are my people over there. Um, I don't get scared easily. And so, um, yes, there, you know, there have been incidents such as being followed, um, private investigator coming to my house, taking pictures of, of my house without me. Um, he got a broken window because there's been a lot of rumors, a lot of innuendo. Mm -hmm. Um, but people that I, people that I thought knew me Mm. saying things that are, are not true, Mm. but I'll be honest with you. I I, I think that's kind of par for the course. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you look at, the scriptures, right? Look at look at Jesus when he he saved his harshest words and his biggest critiques for the religious leaders, mm-hmm. the religious establishment, mm-hmm. and called them whitewashed tombs. You know, called them broods of vipers, called them all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. said your mother slept with Satan. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was put on the cross for that. You know, obviously, in God's sovereignty, there's a, better, a, a grander design there that He came to die so that He could take away the punishment for our sins. But, mm-hmm. but His speaking out for the marginalized and His speaking out for the oppressed and for the people that have had their honor taken away from them mm-hmm. um, got Him killed. Mm-hmm. And um, not that I'm claiming to be Jesus, but this is what comes for speaking out against. Um, oppression mm-hmm. and speaking out against abuse in any kind of any kind. So you mentioned high point, obviously, and um, with Jules Woodson, yeah. have you been able to talk to her? And if so, mm-hmm. where where is she right now mentally? Um, I was actually um, grateful to be one of the first people that Jules spoke to in December mm-hmm. um, after she wrote Andy Savage an email um, in, on December first. A few days later, she was Googling Andy's name and found my story, mm-hmm. which which had Andy's name in it, and found Michael and Brooks' story as well. And mm-hmm. through a, a friend of hers reached out to me, mm-hmm. and I was able to connect with her. And 
um, at the beginning of part of December. And so I have had the opportunity to uh, be on the front lines with Jules this entire time. And um, Jules Woodson is one of the bravest, strongest people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, she is, she is a survivor. And, you know, you asked earlier about the healing part of it. Mm -hmm. She's here. Mm -hmm. She's stronger than she's ever been. Mm -hmm. And I love that her heart is for others as well. She wants to see this culture of abuse in our churches change. Mm -hmm. And, um, she has lended her story, lended her voice to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have all the respect for Jules. She's an amazing. So with healing, people talk about forgiveness mm-hmm. a lot. And so with this situation, where does, I guess, what does that look like for pers- for people who have experienced what you have experienced? Uh, forgiveness on, uh, for the abuser? Yes. Um, so that's a story that we've been hearing a lot about, mm-hmm. you know, with Andy. Um, Andy Savage is, shouldn't he be forgiven and given grace? Well, that's not my job. Mm-hmm. My job is to not that that's between him and God. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have no like forgiveness and grace is one thing. Forgiveness and grace is for everybody. Look at mm-hmm. the thief on the cross. Look at, look at everybody. I mean, there are people that, that were paying the consequences for their sins. were on the cross next to Jesus and said, remember me when I'm in, when, when you're in paradise. Mm-hmm. And he said, you will be with me when I'm there. Forgiveness and grace is there for anybody. The difference is, is that forgiveness and grace doesn't mean that you don't accept the consequences of your acts. Mm. The thief still had to die. The thief still he didn't get off the cross. He didn't he he he, he died. He, that was the punishment that was in the in the Roman uh, society culture at that time. For mm-hmm. he had to die. Was he forgiven? Was grace given to him? Absolutely. Jesus was there and gave him forgiveness and grace, but he still paid the consequences of his sins. And this is the same exact situation with Andy. Forgiveness and grace is there for him. Nobody's questioning whether or not he can um, truly be forgiven by God for what I believe that he has been. Mm -hmm. But you still have to accept the consequences of your actions. 20 years ago, if this had been handled properly by the, by the pastors of uh, Woodlands Parkway Baptist Church and had been reported to the authorities like it should, mm-hmm. Andy would have been a convicted felon and signed a uh, registry, uh, mm-hmm. sex offenders registry for the rest of it. He would have immediately been disqualified from ever being able to pastor a church, ever be in ministry, ever be in a position of trust like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, this if this had been handled properly then, he would have been disqualified. And so we believe, I believe, that he is disqualified now. He must accept the consequences for his actions. He admitted to it on the stage that he was that that he that he abused. Um, he can spin it however he wants to spin it, but he admitted to it. And you you have to accept the consequences of it. True repentance means not that true repentance means that you don't you don't get to hold on to any. True repentance is I've stolen honor from you. I've stolen your dignity. True repentance is whatever I need to to restore honor and dignity back to you, I will do it. Whatever you need me to do. Because that's what he did to Jules 20 years ago on that dirt road. He stole honor from her. He stole dignity from her. And if he is truly repentant, when he got that email on December 1st, go straight to her. Whatever, 
I am at the mercy of you. Whatever you need me to do, I want to restore honor, restore dignity to whatever I need to do. If I need to go turn myself in, if I need to quit my church, if I need to not write this book, if I need to do all these different things, whatever it is that you need me to do, I will do. That's what repentance looks like. And so what do you say to people who say um, with like with your situation, this is something that I've seen on social media with your situation with someone who is who has done this to several people. Mm -hmm. And with Pastor Andy, he says that it was an isolated isolated incident. It didn't happen. Nothing like that happened before. Nothing like that happened after Mm -hmm. when people say there's a difference. And because of that difference, he shouldn't be disqualified for ministry. What do you say to that? He still broke the law. It doesn't matter if it was once, twice, ten times. That one time was a breaking of the law. He broke the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so without a doubt, you can look at the scriptures. God has used God can use anybody to grow his kingdom. He used Balaam's donkey, you know? But mm-hmm. so nobody is negating what the Lord has done in our city through High Point Church. Mm-hmm. But but in the end, the ultimate thing in this is that no matter if it was once, twice, three times, Andy broke the law that night in Woodlands, Texas, in that abandoned. He was trusted. He was in a position of authority. He had power mm-hmm. over Jules. He was her youth pastor. Mm-hmm. He was authorized to bring her home, which was actually against the rules that was put, put upon him during that time. He wasn't supposed to drive anybody home like that. He brought her home. Instead of taking her home, went past the exit and took her to a field. And through that grooming and manipulating technique that he had been using for at least a year with her, she was very vulnerable, and he took advantage of that, that power differential over So with with situations like that one and with yours, which you've told a lot already, what, what are things that you think the public needs to understand and know that they don't write? I, one of the freedoms that I've experienced over the last few years um, in my healing is that I don't feel the need to defend myself. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't need them to really understand much about about me mm-hmm. um, in terms of my intentions and my motivations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say I love the Lord. I love um, his church, and mm-hmm. I want to see it become a safe place. And, and I think my call to any pastor that's listening to this podcast— any pastor that is that is in this city, um, that is pastoring a group of people that, that love the Lord, that trust him, trust her, my response to them is, you need to take a stand here. Mm-hmm. It is no longer okay to sit on the sidelines because I can guarantee you with the numbers that we know about who have been abused, how many that one in four girls before the age of 18 will be abused. One in six Mm -hmm. boys before the age of 18 will be abused. If you look out into your audience and to the people that are in those pews, in those chairs, there are abuse victims there and they need to know, can I trust this person? Mm -hmm. Can I trust this pastor? Can I trust the people that have been put in a position of spiritual authority over my life? And so, Pastor, I would tell you, stand up. Create from the pulpit. Let your people know that your church will be a safe place for your people, mm-hmm. that their kids will be safe, that, they will, that, they, that you will seek out and you will do the right thing. And when ab- abuse happens, that you will contact proper authorities. Mm-hmm. 
I think what pastors need to understand is just because they have a position of spiritual authority doesn't make them um, experts on everything. Mm-hmm. We pay taxes for police officers that are experts in investigation. Mm-hmm. It's time to trust them. Let them do the investigation. It's not your job to investigate. Mm-hmm. Trust, do the right thing, root out the abusers, prote- protect the abused. It is, it is a, unless you take a stand and say it from the pulpit, I don't know how you can think that people can trust you. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. As far as local, which you said that you are an advocate and you have a group of people who are working with you. Um, yes. What are other local resources that people can, maybe if, it, if it's a place or if it's a person, what, how can people get there are, there are safe places. I mean, there are designated safe places in the city of Memphis. One of them being the Benjamin Hooks Library. This mm-hmm. is a safe place. I would say a great place to go to is the Memphis Child Advocacy Center. They, um, I did a an entire training session with them over a two day stretch, mm-hmm. where they are the leading forensic investigators in terms of dealing with sexually abused victims where they talk to them they know the right words to ask or the right the right questions to ask they know the right words to say um there are there are people that genuinely care and honestly i'm here if you want to reach find me on twitter at kenny s 901 um it's the worst twitter handle ever so i apologize um (laughs) it was kj stubblefield at one point and then i was like nah it's too much um (laughs) You can find me on Facebook, Kenny Stubblefield. Um, I am, I am, I want to be an advocate for sexual abuse victims. They can reach out to me and and, and know that they can trust. That there's anonymity. Um, my ultimate goal is to tell every story, unless it, unless somebody wants it to be. I'm, I, I want to be a safe place for them. Mm-hmm. But we're working to build that up even here more so in Memphis. That's but I would right. say the Memphis Child Advocacy Center is a great place to start. Okay. And then if someone is listening who, whether they're 37 year old, 37 years old like you and this happened to them a long time ago, or if they're 16 years old and it happened, you know, last week, what is, what is it that you want them to know just above all of They're not alone. Um, and three words that I think mean the most to any sexual abuse victim is hearing somebody say that I believe you. Mm-hmm. I believe you. Mm-hmm. I believe your story. Uh, in that child advocacy center training, I asked a question. I said, how many of these stories that are told are turn out to be false, false accusations, which is a lot of people say a lot of times mm. you don't want to falsely accuse somebody mm. according to their research, which they are the leading people in terms of this research. Mm-hmm. 2% of stories are false. We have to trust the victims. We have to trust them. And, and again, like I told you earlier, if somebody is willing to tell you their story, they're probably only giving you 20. And I also heard it was um, something else that I was looking at or reading that it, by the time somebody actually comes to you, it, it's been, it Years. could have been, a, yeah, it could have been a while. Yeah. Most of the time, most of the time it, it sexual abuse is the most underreported crime in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it takes a lot longer. Usually it takes 20, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm which is why I think statute of limitations need to change. We need to reflect what, look at, look at how long it takes abuse victims to come forward 
and reflect our statute of limitations around that. Mm. Um, we need to make our mandatory, mandatory reporting laws different. Did you know that in the state of Tennessee, um, there are mandated reporters? Pastors are one of them. Mm -hmm. The penalty for not reporting a sexual abuse, um, suspicious, uh, suspicious of suspicion of sexual abuse or mm -hmm. knowing about a sexual abuse is a $50 fine and a class three misdemeanor. It's yeah. a seatbelt ticket. We need to change our mandatory reporting penalties because mm -hmm. imagine being a pastor of a mega church or a church that, you know, this is where you make your money mm -hmm. and being told someone on your staff or somebody in our church is abusing me or this kid or whoever mm -hmm. having to make that choice of probably they're never going to come forward if I don't report it. Mm -hmm. If I do, if I don't report it, the least, the worst that can happen to me is a $50 ticket and a misdemeanor. Or I could report this and destroy, I'm putting up air marks or air mm -hmm. quotes, destroy my ministry and hurt my, fun, my, my salary. Mm -hmm. That's a choice that these guys have to make. And unfortunately, these pastors have made, it, have made terrible choices over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we need to make the mandatory reporting penalties much stiffer. Okay. Well, this has been great. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? I want to say thank you for reaching out and asking me to come and speak because um, this is a hard topic and it's, it would be very easy to not deal with it. It would be very easy to just say, this is too tough. It's too raw. It's too graphic. It's too, um, it could alienate my audience. And I want to commend you for, having the bravery to, to tackle this subject because there's not many out there that will. So thank you for, for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, is that something that you've seen that people just, just say, I'm just not going to. Absolutely. Um, not many people will, will discuss. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time and having, okay, this is what I wanted to ask about. As far as you've been telling this story for a really long time, mm -hmm. you said that you've been, you, you know, when in ministry mm -hmm. and you're telling it, you just told it right now and you're probably going to have to again. And so what kind of toll does that, it seems like it's just wear on you to have to tell it over and over. Telling my story, um, because I know that the impact that it's had on other abuse victims mm -hmm. is I, I am glad to tell my story. I'm willing to tell my story at any time because I want other abuse victims to know that they can tell their story too. Mm -hmm. um, the, I am in a perpetual state of exhaustion. So, understandable. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that um, it does take a toll. This is not, I'm not trying to look for sympathy here, but mm -hmm. it does take a, but, but, but that toll is worth it when I see the good that comes from it. So at this point, I will say this, I'm in a really good place. I am, I know that I've been told that I'm in a dark place, that this is personal, that it's been, that I'm vindictive. It is personal. Mm -hmm. There's not a vindictive bone in my body. Um, I am in an incredibly healthy, um, strong, I'm in a, in a, mental, emotional, spiritual place that I haven't been in 20 years. Mm. And so, um, I, my wife was telling somebody yesterday, she said, 
oh, you think you think this is dark? You haven't seen dark, Kenny. Like, so I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a good place. Um, I feel strong. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a toll, but but I'm good.